There's closer news all over the place. I'll talk about it with our Player Watch News analysts, Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, about all that and more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. It's show number four of the 2020 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday news and notes edition for you. We will have our League Watch player news reports, Harold Nichols with coverage of the National League, including closer news in San Diego, Pittsburgh, and Colorado, bad news for the Atlanta rotation, and some concerns about a prime young slugger. And Ray Murphy will have news from the American League, including closer news in Tampa, bearing an eerie resemblance to the closer news in San Diego, bad news for the Angels rotation, and all kinds of news about rotations in the American League Central. We'll also have my three-minute warning, where I'll be talking about repeating high home run seasons. It's another big Friday news and notes edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Comment Edition, our League Watch Player News reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. We start with a raft of news affecting bullpens, uh, starting with a fairly significant trade. Ray's closer Emilio Pagan goes to the Padres for outfielder Manuel Margot. I'll be talking with Ray Murphy a little later about the effect on the Ray's bullpen, but there's also a Padres angle. Uh, Jock Thompson covered the Padres' side of the story for playing time today. So how does Jock project the effect of this deal on the pretty loaded Padres' bullpen? Well, the addition of Pagan adds to what was really shaping up as a very formidable bulletin that now looks like lights out on paper. Uh, the Rays' primary closer in the second half of 2019, 16 saves. Pagan put together a ridiculous 56-4 strikeout walk ratio, 18, 19% swinging strikes after June, the only blemish being a large fly ball tilt. But now with the Padres, his ninth inning chances look very limited by the presence of Kirby Yates, who could... Uh, in turn, lose a few opportunities to Pagan. On the other hand, if San Diego falls out of the picture, of course, Kirby Yates would be a prime trade target in the middle of the season. Uh, Contenders looking for a guy who can really shut down the opposition, as Kirby Yates has done for the last while, especially last year. So could Pagan be a good guy to grab, you know, just in the meantime, while you're waiting for things to shake out in San Diego in the longer run? Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, Pagan is the kind of guy who's going to uh, who's going to get you good, uh, probably a great ERA and, and good ratios and, and strikeouts, even if he doesn't wind up closing. So, uh, as somebody at the back end of a bullpen, I would think he would be very, very valuable. The trade will also affect the San Diego outfield with Margot headed to Tampa. Could clear up what was shaping up as a bit of a logjam there. What does Jock predict on that score? Well, Margo's departure leaves center field wide open in San Diego, and Will Myers, Trent Grisham, uh, Franchi Cordero have all logged time there in 2019. There are all significant questions about about each of them. Um, more pre-opening day move by the Padres that could change both the outfield and the bullpen 
would not be a surprise. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, but certainly the outfield logjam is cleared by one body at least at this point. Yeah, it does shake things up in San Diego, which might have been uh, something that San Diego needed because, as I said, they were kind of overloaded out there. Right now we have um, uh, Tommy Pham, of course, is going to play a lot in left field. We have Grisham as the main center fielder at Baseball HQ's depth charts with Myers in right. And then they have, you know, Trammell and Cordero, you mentioned, uh, Naylor as well. So there's still maybe some questions to settle in that outfield. So if you're drafting right away, don't draft as though San Diego's got a whole bunch of guys locked in beyond Tommy Pham, I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I would not I would not assume that any of those other guys beyond Pham are locked into a starting role. More bullpen news in Pittsburgh. Manager Derek Shelton announced this week that Keone Kayla is going to start the year as the closer. Uh, Rick Green on the story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What is Rick's take on this news about Keone Kayla in Pittsburgh? Yeah, kind of a surprise, I think, that the announcement came at this point this early. Um, Baseball HQ's take is that, um, well, USA Today predicted a 60-102 record for Pittsburgh. So how many save opportunities will he really get? But on the other hand, with a team like uh, like Pittsburgh, there may be a lot of close games, and he might get all 60 of those of those wins as save opportunities. So you never really know. Uh, we've upped our percentage of saves with the news, but keep in mind that Kiela has been injured in three of the past four seasons. Uh, and that, uh, 2.12 ERA from 2019 looks really good on paper, but he had a 4.14 XERA. So, um, in fact, if Kayla should open 2020 with a flourish, you could look for Pittsburgh to move him. Yeah, another situation where a bad team gets a good closer. Maybe there's uh, somebody to move along. I did some uh, research a few years ago, Nick, about that whole question. Are you better to get a closer on a good team because they win more games or a bad team because they win fewer games but they're likely to be closer? And the the research was pretty convincing that uh, you really want guys on good teams because the, the amount of saves is directly tied to the amount of wins. There's no escaping that. And really there is no sort of correlation between a team's record and its record in in close games the more you win the more close games you win the the less games you win the less close games you win so there's going to be in a team that's going to struggle like Pittsburgh I think there's just going to be a, a shortage of state save opportunities yeah I think I think you're right and that it, it makes a, an awful lot of sense that clearly you would want a guy on a uh, on a better team uh, as your closer in a, in a fantasy league on the other hand, everybody knows this, so maybe Keona Kayla slips down into the sort of third tier of closers. And even if he plays half a season and gets traded but and, and they don't win very many games, gosh, if it costs you, you know, $2 in the end game or a 20th round pick to grab Keona Kayla, you're going to get your 15 saves, and that's a profit. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, if, if he's, you don't want him as your primary closer, but if he's your, your third or fourth or fifth guy, uh, if you have carry that many relief pitchers, then it could be worth something. Right now, I checked in Baseball HQ on the on the depth charts has Richard Rodriguez second on the saves list by percentage of saves that that's likely to be got. But the idea of stashing a guy like Richard Rodriguez, Nick, expecting Kayla to get traded or possibly to get hurt, he's had injury problems in the past. But when you figure out how few saves are going to be and the, the value of the roster spot, unless you have extremely deep reserves, I think the idea, unlike, say, grabbing Pagan for your reserve list in San Diego, where there's a, you know, a higher level of team play, there's going to be more likelihood of a trade, those kinds of things. 
I think reaching for a Pittsburgh second closer or third closer probably isn't warranted unless you have, like I said, extremely deep reserves. Yeah, I would agree with you on that completely. It's uh, You would have to have very deep reserves to want a Rich Rodriguez on your roster. Or anybody like him. In Colorado, Wade Davis was named to once again close games for the Rockies despite... I hate to say it, a rocky couple of uh, last few seasons. Uh, Jock Thompson covers the Rockies as well. Uh, What does Jock say about the Rockies' bullpen situation? Well, you know, that was a real surprise that that announcement came this early, given what Davis did last season. 8.65 ERA over 43 innings pitched. But then, you know, consider the guy's got a $17 million contract through this year, uh, and so maybe there was some pressure from the front office. Maybe they just decided he's got the contract. We'll throw him out there and see what happens. Um Barring the Davis reversal, uh, Oberg, uh, uh, Scott Oberg, Jairo Diaz, Jake McGee are names that are likely to get some ninth inning consideration for the Rockies, uh, and that could come sooner rather than later if Davis blows a couple right off the right off the bat. Yeah, this is a situation, Nick. That I, when I look at it, I think you know what this is a an area where I wouldn't mind speculating on on guys like Oberg and and even Jairo Diaz. Jake McGee has a track record of closing games, interestingly enough, in Tampa. So it's it's not like the possibility is as remote that some of these guys could figure into the ninth inning, and in the meantime, give you some pretty good decimal numbers as well. Right, very definitely. So, I mean, you know, those are guys that were worth consideration, I think, as uh, as backups at this point. And notwithstanding the announcement, Baseball HQ's team analysis says Scott Oberg is still the saves leader at 40%, uh, with Diaz second at 30%, Carlos Estevez uh, figures in the mix at 20%, and uh, Davis is only at 25%. So I know that there's been this announcement, but as you said, uh, Wade Davis has been shaky. He's probably not going to have a super long leash. I know they're paying him all that money and they have to get their value. Colorado's weird that way anyway, but uh, I think there's lots of flux that we're going to have to expect in this situation anyway. Yeah, I think so. And you know, what this may do, what the announcement may do, is really depress Scott Oberg's price at this point so that uh, he, you could get him for far less than you could have uh, before the announcement was made. Right. If everybody out there, all the experts were saying, you know, Scott Oberg's the likely guy, then his price probably rises a few rounds. But with this announcement, it's almost certainly going to drop a few rounds. It'll be interesting to watch the ADPs on Scott Oberg. Uh, The off-season trading news was also roiled when the first Mookie Betts deal got cancelled because the Red Sox got cold feet about Twins prospect pitcher Bruce Dar Greaterall. The deal got redone because of a physical that Boston didn't like, and Greaterall got sent directly to LA as part of the Betts deal. Jock Thompson again on this story. What does he see in Bruce Dar Greaterall's future as a Dodger? You know, there, there's a health question with, with Greaterall, certainly. And, uh, but if he can stay healthy, he's got a plus arm and uh, has as much or more upside than anyone else in what has been a fairly shaky LA bullpen. Uh, the Dodgers hope that the 21 year old Greaterall can eventually become a rotation option, but that's not likely to happen this season. Uh, and their depth suggests that his inning pitch will be carefully managed, and he may not be extended early on in his major league career. But, you know, you've got to wonder if uh, if Boston may have really blown this one in terms of uh, of uh, dismissing Greaterall so, so early. Uh, but on the other hand, pitchers do get hurt, and so maybe they're better off with the, with the position prospects they got out of the deal eventually uh, rather than uh, a uh, what could be uh, a top, either starter or closer, if he can stay healthy, and that's a big if. 
Yeah, it seems to me when I look at uh, Greater All's prospects for 2020 that, you know, you look at the rotation, Bueller, Kershaw, Price, whom they just acquired by trade. Dustin May looked pretty good in the second half last year. Uh, Tony Gonsolin has some skills. Then they uh, reacquired Alex Wood. Julio Arias is in there. Um, there's a lot of options that Los Angeles has before they have to reach to a guy like Greater All to fill a spot in the rotation. So it seems barring a string of injuries, it seems really unlikely that he's going to get a lot of starts, so few in fact that you really can't call him a starting pitcher in any real sense. That could change, Nick, during the year. I mean, uh, he may be lights out and everybody realizes, holy cow, this kid's got this great arm and he seems perfectly healthy. Let's let's raise his profile a bit. But in the meantime, I think you have to look at him as a very speculative pick to the point where if you're playing in a 2020-only league, I don't know that he's even really rosterable. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, he's he is so young. I think the Dodgers will try to manage his innings very, very carefully. They would have to get fairly, de- given that their other depth they've got in potential starting pitchers, which is amazing. Uh, they would have to get ver- have a whole lot of injuries, I think, before they would really consider putting Greater All out there as a starter during this coming season. Nice get for a dynasty league or a keeper league, though, that's for sure. Uh, right-handed starting pitcher Cole Hamels moved to Atlanta in the offseason, and uh, the team expected him, I think, to play a key role in their revamped rotation. But the early news there, all of a sudden, not so promising, Nick. Uh, the announcement came that Hamels was going to miss the season opener because of shoulder problems, and I th- don't think this is the first time for Hamels with his shoulder. Phil Hertz covers Atlanta for playing time today. Lots of possible downside here, Nick, and I don't see a lot of up. Yeah, I think you're right. A whole lot of downside here. Anytime there's news of a pitcher missing time with a shoulder injury, it has to be a real concern for fantasy owners, I think. And even more true when the guy is 36 years old and had shoulder issues in 2019. Um, as we noted in December, when Hamels signed with the Braves, Hamels experienced ups and downs over the past few years, seemed to have been on track for one of his best seasons before shoulder fatigue ruined the second half last year. So, while it may be the case that Hamels will be ready sometime in April, uh, I would only roster Hamels if there were if I'm prepared to take a lot of risk uh, that he'll either miss considerable time or be ineffective. I, I for me, he's kind of a uh, do I really want this guy on a, on my roster question? And there are lots of other starting pitchers out there. Yeah, and the way you said that uh, he could miss considerable time or be ineffective, I would throw in there's a risk that he could miss considerable time and be ineffective. Uh, already the the usual allotment of playing time at Baseball HQ's depth charts is around 12 or 12.5% of the innings going to the main guys in the rotation. And we've already cut Cole Hamels back to 9%, which is uh, you know a quarter of the available innings, which immediately reduces his value. Even if he comes back in, uh, you know, after missing four or five starts and he's lights out and he's terrific, he's never going to get those innings back. He's never going to get those starts back. He's going to miss out on the possibility of wins in all those games that he doesn't participate in. This is a real blow to Cole Hamill's value. Yeah, it really is. It definitely is a blow to his value. and uh, I, I'm, I'll be staying far away from him on any of my drafts. Assuming that Hamels does miss time, either extensive time or even if he misses a few starts in April, what's Atlanta going to do in the meantime? And what fantasy potential is there with whatever they are going to do? Well, the Braves have a number of young arms who may be major league ready. Uh, Ian Anderson, Bryce Wilson, Kyle Wright. So they've got some possibilities, but none of these pitchers have had success yet at the major league level. So uh, there's a real question at the at the back end of that rotation if Hamels is, is not there. Uh, they've also invited Felix Fernandez to camp, 
but uh, Keem Felix hasn't been an asset since sometime in the middle of the last decade, so I sort of would not count on anything uh, positive out of out of King Felix at this point. Sad to say, isn't it, Nick? But uh, King Felix Hernandez is really not even a, a consideration in fantasy baseball drafts anymore. Yeah, it really is sad to say. I remember writing writing a uh, uh, pitching column last year on the day that he pitched his last game in Seattle, and that was uh, the day maybe he should have retired. Speaking of pitchers, one of our favorite columnists at BaseballHQ.com is Stephen Nickrand, who writes the Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide at BaseballHQ.com, but he also writes the Buyer's Guide column for hitters. And in a recent Batting Buyer's Guide piece, Stephen tabbed some young targets, he called them. These are players that owners should be aware of and who might be a little bit under the radar just because of age. One of those young targets, Arizona catcher Carson Kelly. And I like Kelly. Why is Stephen Nickrand enthusiastic about this young catcher? Well, Kelly looked like a frontline backstop at times in 2019. He finished with 18 home runs and only 314 at-bats. Uh, that power came with full backing with a, uh, a 168 expected power index. Uh, and on top of that, a very solid plate approach, 13% walk rate, 75% contact rate, 0.61i, so it wasn't striking out an overly large amount of times. Really has legitimate, I think, breakout potential in 2020. And at this point, a 205 ADP, I think really a good value at that rate. Yeah, and the baseball forecaster, Nick, they talked about some exciting power growth and his expected power index, which is a metric that kind of moves one step farther away from what's on the field and one step closer to pure skills, uh, shows there's still plenty of room for more growth in the power department. They said he could hit 30 home runs this year, uh, and you, you mentioned those skills. Pretty good contact rate, although it dipped a little bit. His walk rate is improving, which is a very good sign for increased power. And there's maybe a little bit of upside on the batting average side as well. Uh, at, at, at ADP 200 and some, this guy looks like a terrific bargain, and I'm going to be certainly looking for my opportunities to roster Carson Kelly because it's so hard to find catchers who can hit, but to find a catcher who can hit you 25, 30 home runs, boy, oh boy, you got something if you're getting him in the in the 15th round or whatever it is. Yeah, you really do. I mean, that's uh, that's amazing. And if you get that many home runs out of a guy and got a batting average that's over 250, uh, that would be fantastic from a catcher. Another columnist we both like at Baseball HQ, we talk about a lot here at Baseball HQ Radio, Nick, is Ryan Bloomfield, who writes the Speculator column. And in his most recent piece, it was titled, Avoiding This Year's Jesus Aguilar. And we all want to avoid this year's Jesus Aguilar, that's for sure. Ryan was writing about players likely to regress, and to regress negatively in particular. And the National Leaguer at the top of his list, take a breath, breakout star Pete Alonso. The Mets' first baseman smashed 53 homers last season as a rookie, but Ryan's got some concerns with betting on a repeat performance. In some rare company, just four other hitters have hit 50 more, over 50 home runs in the last 10 years. So, you know, that's you think, wow, I really want this guy. But the group's home run totals the following season of those who've hit over 50 home runs, 43, 38, 27, and 26. So none of them got there to that 50 mark in the in the following season uh, and regression isn't the only powerful force going against him either he he flashed a poor contact rate 69 percent contact rate in 2019 saw dips in raw power of more uh, 135 expected power index and a 251 expected batting average in the second half 
uh, as pitchers began to get a little more used to him. And with an offseason for pitchers to study him and find holes in his game, uh, the risk of Polar Bout Pete going ice cold is a little too high, I think, for a third-round pick. Uh, if by some crazy measure he drops down a few rounds in your draft, then he's worth looking at. But uh, I, I, I'm staying away from Pete Alonso at this point. Yeah, some of the other guys who hit 50, Giancarlo Stanton and Chris Davis and Aaron Judge. And as as Ryan pointed out, all of these guys fell off to some extent, uh, sometimes a very large extent, maybe through injury, maybe through guys figuring out what's going on on the uh, as far as pitchers go. But 50 home runs is still a kind of a black swan event. And, and until a guy does it a couple of times, really, I think betting on 50 home runs in general is probably not a great idea. But to bet on it as a repeat, boy, oh boy, that's that seems even more risky. Yeah, I think it does. And, you know, we've got to remember anytime a, anytime a guy comes up as a rookie and tears the league up as a hitter, You've got to remember it's the first time these pitchers have seen him. Uh, we saw some adjustment to Alonzo as the season went on. Uh, and certainly uh, there were plenty of, uh, of, of uh, coaches sitting in film rooms going, I'm not going to let this guy beat me this year. What can we throw Pete Alonzo that he won't hit out of the park? So there's been a lot of studying going on, I assure you. Uh, and they're going to be trying some different pitches on Pete Alonzo uh, as uh, the season begins. The fourth guy that Ryan mentioned, I, I should point out, Jose Bautista in, in Toronto uh, way back in 2010. Uh, it was an interesting column from Ryan Bloomfield, some other intriguing names in both leagues, guys to be cautious about. Uh, and as always, we've had an interesting review of the news from the National League. Thanks to you, Nick. Uh, appreciate it. We'll talk to you in a week. Thank you, Patrick. Things are heating up as we, uh, as pitchers and catchers are in camp. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, we'll have news analysis from the American League with Ray Murphy. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the buying guide for batters, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at some young targets for 2020. Nick and I talked about this column in the National League Player News segment. In the GM's office, co-general manager Brent Hershey discusses projections, psychology, and the Astros scandal. And in Facts and Flukes, analyst Brian Rudd looks at five National Leaguers, including Juan Soto, Robinson Cano, and Rick Porcello. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters and relievers, fantasy market analysis by former big league general manager Brad Coleman in the Market Pulse, and injury analysis in the Big Hurt. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they are why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for news from the American League. And here with stories and analysis is Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back. Always good to catch up, Patrick. we got a few things to clean up from last week, don't we? We can start, for instance, with a trade that many analysts were scratching their heads about. 
independent of us, Tampa sent its closer, Emilio Pagan, to San Diego, got back outfielder Manuel Margot. We talked about Emilio Pagan last week as the closer in Tampa and how that shook out. Now he's not in Tampa anymore. But the thing, Ray, that wrinkled some brows was that Tampa already had uh, a lot of outfielders and San Diego already had a pretty strong bullpen. Uh, so it didn't seem like a trade that made a lot of sense. Chris Olson covers Tampa for playing time today. What do you think the Rays were thinking, and how are they going to cram Manuel Margot into that already crowded outfield? It is a crowded outfield, but it, it seems to me like there are really two classes of players within that logjam, and I think you can organize it that Margot is a platoon partner or a backup or insurance policy for Kevin Kiermeyer in center field, and those two guys will be in center field all the time, primarily for defensive purposes. They're both superior defensive center fielders. And I think if there's something you read into this trade, it's that Tampa places a high value on that. So that means that if those two guys have center field on lockdown, but I don't think you'll see them play together all that often, then the logjam you're talking about just cascades over to left and right field. And to some extension also includes... DH in first base. It also means that uh, we have to kind of downgrade the playing time of both Margot and Kiermaier and possibly all these other guys. Is it starting to get towards a situation where, especially in mixed leagues, where a lot of these Tampa players start to look like they might not be really rosterable or at least not rosterable in the top half of a draft because of playing time concerns? Yeah, I think that's right. And there's There are actually several teams that are sort of in this boat, but Tampa certainly tops the list. Uh, on the AL side, absolutely. For instance, I'm looking at our point time allocations now, and I think there's a couple of things that are telling there. First of all, we've got Kiermaier and Margot in a straight plat- platoon. You know, Kiermaier getting 70% of the starts, essentially against right-handed pitching. Margot getting 35%. We're a little over-allocated there. Maybe you see both of them play for defense or something like that every so often. But basically, those guys are occupying one position. And the ripple effects out of that, as you say, are that you can't really, you know, there's so much depth here, you can't really allocate anybody else as a full-time player. Even Austin Meadows, who is quickly becoming the you know, the star centerpiece of this lineup, we only have allocated for 85% right now, uh, 85% of the available playing time. And him and Willie Adams at shortstop are the only guys we have even that high at 85%. Everybody else is 75% or more commonly in the 60s and 50s because, as you say, they have you know what the Cubs used to call the team pretzel concept going on here, and everyone's going to be moving around. They're going to platoon heavily, and this is one of those little subtle implications of the 26-man roster, I think, is that everyone's got a little more flexibility to do that. And also, uh, w- when you look at how this Tampa Bay roster sets up, it looks like they're planning on maybe resting guys a little more often. The uh, allocations of playing time that we have, assuming that they're more or less accurate, indicate that, as I said, there's a lot of players here who are going to be lucky to get two-thirds of the available playing time. If you think of that as, you know, 650 or so plate appearances, now you're talking about, you know, 480 or 500 plate appearances. It's a huge blow to all of those guys as far as their counting stats are concerned. It is, and it becomes frustrating to manage for 
we, the fantasy players, because sure, there will inevitably be some injuries and there will be stretches of time when some of the flexibility at some positions goes away and it's obvious who's going to play for a stretch because some of the pretzel options are unavailable. But you know, with players moving around, it's not even a straight, you know, the Kiermaier Margot thing is probably the easier riddle to unravel because that's a straight platoon, but you're going to see other considerations coming in. And if you're trying to figure out who's going to be playing left field, right field, first base DH between Satsugo and Choi at first and Nate Lowe, if and when he's on the roster and in the outfield, Renfro and Jose Martinez, who everyone is excited to see what he can do. If we thought he might get a full opportunity when he came over from St. Louis just a month or two ago, and now he's already stuck in this logjam that looks just as bad or worse than what he was facing in St. Louis. So I'm not even sure that if you look at the roster for a weekend and see two righties and a lefty coming up facing Tampa, you can even discern from that who what it means for who's going to play over the weekend when you're setting your lineup. I think it's uh, it's even more complicated than the traditional platoon rat's nest. Meanwhile, as I mentioned, we talked about Pagan last week, but he's gone from Tampa, so more dominoes are going to fall in the Rays' bullpen. We should all be interested in who gets the ball in the ninth inning for what looks like it's going to be a very solid winning team with an interesting offense, maybe based a lot on matchups and and advanced analytics that they're not uh, divulging to us, but they they may have a plan here. And Tampa's good at making plans. You have to give them credit where it's due. But meanwhile, how does the Rays' pen shake out? As you say, we talked about it last week, and they have a lot of good options, and that's probably why the simplest explanation for why they made this deal is they took an area of strength, the bullpen, sold from that, and sure, while it looked like the outfield overall is another strength for them, the having a insurance policy for Kiermaier or someone who can keep Kiermaier fresh, and if he has to play for long stretches with Kiermaier being out, they don't lose anything defensively. That was an asset they did not have in the organization. So that's sort of my explanation for why this went down. But getting back to their bullpen, when we were projecting it last week, we had Pagan as sort of the leader for saves, and then the cast of Nick Anderson, Diego Castillo, Colin Posh, Jose Alvarado, all you know waiting in the wings, and whether that meant taking saves for a couple of weeks at a time or just for a particular matchup or extra inning situation or a gas bullpen situation. All those guys in our current projections, now move up sort of one notch on the list. So Nick Anderson, we're now projecting for 50% of the saves, and he slides into the, you can't call him a full-time closer, but sort of the the leader of the committee here, I guess, is probably the right way to describe it. And we have Castillo for 20% of the saves, and Posh at Alvarado for 10 each, and then even Chaz Rowe and Oliver Drake for 5 each. Point being that, you know, the one inning, get three outs, ninth inning save with a two or three run lead isn't necessarily the toughest job in sports. And a lot of these guys have the skills to handle that job the majority of the time if they're asked to. So Kevin Cash's preferences are going to be a huge factor in discerning who you want to own in this bullpen. And of course, the Rays already had a reputation for managing their bullpen by leverage. I mentioned last week that 11 pitchers had a save for Tampa last year. So How likely is it that it's a mix-and-match scenario like that again in 2020 where nobody gets a ton of saves, even if the team generates, you know, what the expected 50% of wins, which would be, you know, 45-ish type of saves. They had 46 last year. 
it could be that nobody's going to get much more than the mid-20s again. I think that's exactly right because, like I said, manager preference is a huge factor here, and Cash has demonstrated that he will manage in the way you described. I was I was actually off, off topic, but I was actually doing a spot on a Philadelphia radio station last night, and they were asking me about the Phillies bullpen, and in particular in the change from Gabe Kapler, who had an itchy trigger finger in that role and was willing to change closers every five minutes, to Joe Girardi, who traditionally has been more of a you know paint-by-number, here's a guy for the seventh, here's a guy for the eighth, here's a guy with the ninth. I, I think that there's more, you know, he's a guy who you can project more stability from and won't be changing uh, pitchers any, every time, uh, you know, the, the, his de facto closer walks the leadoff batter. Uh, but I back to Tampa, Cash has already shown that he will play matchups, ride the hot hand, use people in high leverage situations where he needs them regardless of inning. So, yeah, just like we were saying last week about Pagan, where we thought maybe nobody in this bullpen would get 20 or 25 saves and they would get spread around, I think that's still very much in play with just a slightly different cast of characters now. Having said that, uh, Anderson looks like the front runner to get, to, if there's going to be a, a guy who gets the 22 out of out of 44 type saves, like half of them, it looks like Anderson's definitely the front runner there. Uh, I read recently, Ray, that the best remaining pitcher on the free agent market was former Uber prospect Taiwan Walker. A free agent no more. He has signed with his old team back in Seattle. Uh, where does he fit into the Mariners' rotation, and how interested should we be in Taiwan Walker as a rebound type candidate? I don't know how interested I am today, but he's certainly somebody who I want to watch during the spring. Uh, there's a bunch of factors going on here. Walker, just to recap, uh, he had uh, his elbow blew out. He had Tommy John surgery early in 2018. I think he had four starts in 2018 before his elbow gave out. And he was out for, obviously, all of the rest of 2018. And all of 2019, save one inning he came back and threw on the last day of the season just to sort of, I guess, put the capstone on his rehab. As it turned out, that also put a capstone on his career with the Diamondbacks. So he hit the free agent market this year. I, I, I mentioned him last week, I think, when we were talking about the lack of depth in the Boston rotation after the David Price trade that he might be somebody that the Red Sox would target. Then I read this week that the Cubs had him in throwing and they were looking at him, but he ends up signing in Seattle. And really, it's if you look at the Seattle's pitching staff, it's not too hard to see why. Their rotation is just a gaping chasm waiting for someone to come in and fill it. They've got Marco Gonzalez and Yusei Kikuchi and Justice Sheffield penciled into the rotation. They're the three guys we sort of have set up as the full-time starters on our depth charts. And after that, it's guys like Justin Dunn and Nick Margavicious and Eric Swanson and Manny Benuelos and a, a rehabbing Kendall Graveman. Point being, if Walker is healthy and can show any type of his former stuff, which was pretty decent at times. He's got a, he's got a lot of running room here to rebuild his value. And the other va- the other thing about going back to Seattle in this particular situation, as opposed to say the Cubs, is he'll get more runway. And if he's not ready to go to start the season, or if his velocity is taking a while to come back, or if he hasn't found his command, I, I would imagine Seattle is much more likely to just let him take his lumps and try to find his stuff in the summer than it would have been in Chicago or Boston. So uh, I don't know how much to read in about where Walker is, that this is where he chose to go, but uh, it's obviously a terrible team context. But he's uh, I will be interested to see reports on his velocity and what he looks like in the spring. He might not be somebody I, I will draft, but he might be somebody who 
I'm watching the pickup in season when some signs that he's coming around actually start to appear in box scores. Geez, Ray, the the uh, phrase that you just used that put me on my guard was uh, they might be willing to let him stay out there and take his lumps. And, you know, in in a certain way, that's exactly what you don't want as a fantasy owner is a, a team that's willing to let a guy sit out there and take nine earned runs for the club because they got nobody better or because they want to just let this kid get back into shape or whatever. But that, that looks like a reason to really be very wary of what uh, – what uh, this pitcher could do on your on your roster during the season, I don't know. I'm go- I'm going to be interested to watch as you are to see what Taiwan Walker does, but I'm also going to be very wary of being uh, willing to throw a- any kind of gamble at him during draft. That's for sure. Uh, Moving on, uh, we also talked last week about the Mookie Betts trade and how that affected everything, and then it became the not Mookie Betts trade. Then it became the Mookie Betts trade part two with a whole bunch of different moving parts. So it's all over with, but some of the changes in the Mookie Betts deal affected other deals the Dodgers made, including the trade of Ross Stripling to the Angels. And on top of that, the club has now announced that their two-way stud Shohei Otani won't pitch until mid-May at the earliest. So what started to look like an upgraded rotation is now seemingly back in disarray. Jock Thompson covers the Angels for playing time today and playing time tomorrow. What does Jock think is the shape of the rotation with all of these uh, undone deals? Yeah, when we talked about it last week, you know, it was easy to see why both Jock Peterson and Stripling were of interest to the Angels, and Stripling in particular because this rotation, while they've spent a good amount of effort rebuilding it this winter, they've now got Julio Tehran and Dylan Bundy at the quote-unquote top of it, and Andrew Heaney as well, and those three guys are pretty, pretty steady. Griffin Canning was a rookie last year, and fared well in stretches and he'll be in the rotation but without Otani at least to start the season it's an interesting collection of assets that they're gonna have to figure out how to use and what they want to do with I I think the best of them might have been Felix Pena but he blew out his uh, knee at the end of last season and we will need to wait and see in the spring what his timeline is after that there's uh, Jaime Berea there's Matty Andresi, who you know was a interesting guy in Tampa a couple of years ago, and most recently I think appeared in the Arizona bullpen. He's he might be more of a, a an opener or you know multi inning bulk guy sort of thing. In the, the, the Angels were doing that last year with some of these guys, so that might be how this plays out too. Patrick Sandoval is also interesting, and he might be the guy with the inside track to the vacated Otani spot to start the season. A very speculative play, but his numbers, you know, he he, he does some of the things you want to see. He has a ground ball heavy approach. He wasn't bad in the majors last year. Uh, There's some history of strikeouts to go with the the ground ball rate. Last year, he had a 47% ground ball rate and struck out more than a batter inning in a small nine start sample in the majors. I mean, that's, that's the start of something. I'm not rushing out to get him, but... In a as a reserve pick or a draft and hold stash, something like that, that might be somebody you get some value from sometime this year. But it's you know all of these guys are probably going to get work at some point between Sandoval and Berea and Pena and Andresi while they're waiting for Otani to come back, and then of course there will be other dominoes and other guys who need to hit the DL at some point to create opportunities. 
I think that's a really uh, right-on analysis. I would say that from a drafting point of view or from a, a, a roster planning point of view at this stage, I don't think any of these guys are really rosterable. You know, you look at a Patrick Sandoval and you say, yeah, I can see some possibilities here, but... You know, he had a five ERA last year. I think his expected ERA was four twenty-five or something like that. And and you know, the, so there's room for his ERA to improve, but not to improve a lot. And he walks a fair number of guys. He's around four point five walks per nine innings. So his command ratio, even though his dominance rate is up around ten, is actually only around two. You know, there there are things about these pitchers, all of them, that make you think that this is a guy. What I'm going to do is I'm going to watch them during the year to see if anything seems to improve and try to be the first man to get a fab bid in on them for streaming purposes or for you know player replacement injury purposes when it looks like any one of them has finally figured something out and is going to be able to be consistently usable rather than kind of pie-in-the-sky usable. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm really... You're you're right to point that out because I am certainly you know, in some of these cases squinting to see any any possibility for value, and you don't necessarily want the guy. You know, going back to the Walker example, that sort of applies to all of these guys. You don't necessarily want the guy who gets named the fifth starter in spring training because then you end up spending a buck for him in your end game, but then he's stuck on your roster. You'd rather have the guy who doesn't make the rotation and you stuck either grab him in your reserve round and keep him on your bench, or like you said, you grab him in season when it starts to look like he's showing some stuff and you can freely get away from him if you need to. It's the, uh, you know, you, you always have to be conf- conscious of your league rules regarding of how you can get away, get away from somebody who's hurting you. And you want, uh, you know, th- these guys are free pickup and drop guys only. Uh, speaking of playing time tomorrow and Jock Thompson, uh, on Wednesday, our analyst Matt Dodge had a roundup of the American League Central, and he was focusing on the rotation go-round that uh, comes around about this time every year. Naturally, many locks around the division, but there are also many situations that are up in the air, especially as you get to the tail end of the rotation. Let's start in Minnesota, arguably the division favorite. The top part of their rotation looks set. They've got Jose Barrios, Jake Odorizzi, especially if they figure out how to get him two times through the order and out. Uh, newly arrived Kenta Maeda is uh, traded, not traded, traded back. And probably Homer Bailey, I think, looking in that four spot. Then they have Michael Pineda. He's serving a PED suspension. Uh, Rich Hill they signed, but he's recovering from elbow surgery. So as we approach spring training, it doesn't look like they have anybody in that five hole. So who are the contestants? It's going to come down to Devin Smeltzer and Randy Dobnak, I think. these Neither one is really a top prospect. They both make our... Twins top 15 prospect list, but they are literally number 14 and number 15. Both similar profiles, neither with great stuff. Smelter's your crafty lefty who relies on command and deception and pinpoint control to make a living. And Dobnak, you know, it comes from the right side, but is very much of a similar profile, more of a sinker belt baller who tries to keep the ball down and in the yard and also has very good control. Again, like we're talking about before, these guys are very much of the same cloth of what we were just talking about with the Angels and Taiwan Walker. These are speculations, and it may be that the guy who makes the rotation is not the guy you want later in the season. So these guys are all for the watch list, but it does look like, especially with Pineda suspended at the beginning of the year and Rich Hill out until 
deep into the summer at least, and at least one of Dobdak and Smelter have to open the year in the rotation. And given the team context, this is a good team, a very good lineup with a, also an odd combination or a combination you don't find very often of a very potent lineup behind him and a pretty good place to pitch, both in terms of the home park and the division as a whole. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that you could bleed some value out of, out of either one of these guys. And, of course, team context on the drafting side also matters. Uh, what kind of uh, roster you're shaping up, how you plan to, to fill your rotation. Or you go, or, you know, if you get a couple of real studs early, you can gamble a little more late. And if you're in a very deep league, it's different from being in a shallow league. All of these things take into account, and it's impossible for us to say, you should do this because... Uh, like, unless you're talking about Garrett Cole or Jake DeGrom, but in situations like this, you know, everything we say has to come with the caveat. It depends on how your league is set up. And that's a, that's a huge part of everything that we're going to say for the next five minutes or so. So keep that in mind. Uh, in Chicago, the White Sox look like they're trying to make a run for the division title. They added a couple of left-handers, Dallas Keuchel and Gio Gonzalez. They had Lucas Giolito, uh, Ronaldo Lopez and Dylan Cease uh, looking like they were going to start. What about former stud prospect, Michael Kopech? That's going to be, you know, on the list of guys we want to watch in the spring, Kopech's going to be at the top of a lot of lists, I think. You know, his stuff before injury was electric. We haven't seen him at all. We haven't his but his surgery was <coughs> excuse me, his surgery was in September of twenty eighteen. So he's right around that magical eighteen months after Tommy John's surgery mark where things should come back. Uh he had a fairly regular off season as has been reported so far. So certainly a lot of eyes on him. You would imagine both in terms of being careful with such a prized asset and also in terms of managing innings, the twins are good. The twins, the white Sox are going to be very cautious with him. So I think the potential of an innings cap in general is one of the things that's holding down his ADP. For for the type of prospect and for what he showed us in the majors, his ADP is a bargain right now at somewhere around round eighteen. You know, an ADP that's you know between two fifty and three hundred. If he shows anything on the mounds in March, that ADP is going to skyrocket. But in fact, you know, from a value proposition perspective, you probably really hope that doesn't happen. And either he gets knocked around, or maybe has a setback that puts him in extended spring training or whatever, and makes him cheap to acquire. And you can tuck him away, and maybe if you if you can hang on to him until. May or June when he comes up, and even if he's only going to throw 100 or 120 innings this year, you can bank all of that. You know, there's still plenty of time for him to get that in, get those innings in with a late start to the season. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with Kopech. He could be very buzzy three or four weeks from now, but from a value proposition, it's probably better for us if he's not. Cleveland has arguably the best top three in the league, certainly in the division with Mike Clevenger, Shane Bieber, and we're assuming a fully recovered Carlos Carrasco. Carlos Carrasco, by the way, if you're drafting the next few days, his ADP is way below where it should be given his talent. But after we get past Clevenger, Bieber, and Carrasco, things are a lot more murky. They are, and you Right now, some of the guys who are in, in the mix for that are guys we saw last year. There's Aaron Savali and Zach Plesak and Adam Plutko, all of whom kind of filled that rotation last year when they had so much attrition in Cleveland where you know Kluber and Carrasco and Clevenger were all on and off the DL for long stretches. So we saw all three of 
these guys, and they're not terribly interesting. Plisak and Savali were good, but their underlying skills did not support what they did at all, and we expect some serious regression with them. Plutko was a lot worse than those guys in terms of surface skills, but sort of the bad news is his underlying metrics are just as bad. So with all of those guys having warts, it might be that Logan Allen is the guy who ends up getting some work here or distinguishes himself from these guys over the long term. You know, he was in San Diego and Cleveland last year, and he wasn't great, but he's got a track record in the upper minors of striking out a guy in inning with decent command over a large sample size in double and triple A. He's left-handed, he's left-handed, which is a nice variation for this rotation. So whether to start the season or some sometime a few weeks or a month in, it's not hard to imagine that Allen ends up in this rotation. And of the candidates for this back end, the back end spots in this Cleveland rotation, he's the one I'm most interested in, which is still faint praise, but we'll still but I'll stick with it. It's also uh, worth noting that Plesak and Savali have minor league options remaining, so the the uh, Cleveland management has some flexibility as far as how they deal with this, especially if they're interested in looking at Allen starting the season, because and they, they have these other two guys kind of in reserve. Uh, Plutko, you mentioned, uh, was a real clunker last year. He doesn't have options. I wouldn't be surprised to see him waived or moved to the bullpen uh, at best. Uh, Having gone through Minnesota, Cleveland, and Chicago, we start to fish Ray in even less promising waters, uh, starting with Detroit. Oh, they're going to add journeyman right-hander Ivan Nova to a motley crew, we can call it. Is there anybody here to like? None of the guys were going to start the season after Matt Boyd, at least. Everything else is pretty bleak here, but those guys are all taking up space, waiting for the cavalry to come from the miners. And that, you know, most people know about Matt Manning and Casey Mize, who are their number one and two prospects, both starting pitchers who we may see later this summer, depending on how they go through the miners, how their innings limits look, and obviously um, service time games to be played there too. But we th- th- these two are going to be ready sometime later this year. But if you're looking a little sooner, the guy to look at might be Tariq Skubal, who's a lefty, also coming up from the minors. He was number five on the on our list of the Tigers prospects, but he's got a little more experience in Double A, so he might be able to come up before Mize and Manning. Uh, and he was pretty interesting. He's a rated in eight CNR prospect scale. So if he's the first one we see, you know, maybe you get a little more value out of him this year. But you know, don't forget that the this is another place where the team context is terrible and we shouldn't be rushing out to grab anybody who pitches for the Tigers, at least nobody not named Boyd or Jimenez. I read about uh, Tariq Skubal in uh, the minor league baseball analyst, Baseball HQ's uh, prospect annual that came out recently. uh, And in the 2020 edition, they talked about uh, that Scooble has what they call effective velocity differentials in his four-pitch mix. So he's got a, four decent pitches, and there's good uh, velocity differences, and that really counts. Uh, there, I've read some articles about the importance of velocity difference, and it certainly worked for him in the minors. I, I looked him up in uh, 179 strikeouts last year in 123 innings. Now, that was partly in single A, but also in double A, and you know the competition's getting a little better. I agree. I think Scooble could be in Detroit 
quicker than we might think and might not be horrible. And he's certainly a guy we should be looking at in long-term leagues, dynasty leagues, keeper leagues, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. If all eyes in that organization for the long term are on Myers and Manning, but Scooble's still available and you've got a minor league spot available, that's a uh, that's an interesting place to speculate. I guess the good news is for Detroit that you know sooner or later the pitching is going to get better here. Which is only the start of their troubles, let's be honest. Uh, finally, we get to, to the smoldering train wreck in Kansas City, uh, where their slogan could be uh, Duffy, Montgomery, Junis, and pray the season ends soonest. Uh, this, is a, this is a bad rotation, and at the end of it, it's maybe even worse. Yeah, boy, just hold your nose and move to the next page, right? It's uh, it's pretty bleak all around, and they they like the Tigers have some help coming in the minor in the minors, and we might see guys like Daniel Lynch or Jackson Cower or Brady Singer this year, but none of those are on the on the level of Mize and Manning for sure. And I'm I'm not a prospect wonk, but I'm not sure I put any of those guys even on the same level as as um, Scooble. So. You know, these are names you're going to come across almost certainly at some point in Kansas City this year, but that that doesn't mean that they deserve much more of a look right yet, right now. Yeah, I think we saw Daniel Lynch in the Fall Stars game in the Arizona Fall League, uh, but he's a single A type pitcher. None of these guys is particularly accomplished at uh, in the minor leagues. Uh, Singer, I think, had a two eighty five one nineteen combined line last year for his decimals, but the but the good part of that was in high A. When he got to double A, it was like 350, 130 kind of thing. And so um, really not the kind of numbers that make you sit up and take notice. Lots of pitchers, we should point out, at single A ball put up some pretty impressive numbers. But the, the test starts when you start getting into the better competition. Yeah, and, and just because his first exposure to double A didn't go well last year, he may go back this year and have made some adjustments and start uh, d- delivering, I, I believe he's a former number one draft pick, so maybe he starts delivering on that hype. But right now, there's no reason to be excited about him. If you want to watch from a great distance and see what he does when he undoubtedly returns to Double A to start the year, that's the warmest recommendation I can give, at least for uh, single season leagues. And Ray, before I let you go, uh, how's the uh, availability of seats remaining at the uh, First Pitch Florida debut? We've got a couple left. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work this week to get down to the nitty-gritty details. We're figuring out room space and that sort of thing, You know, literally counting up chairs and that sort of thing. So uh, you know, we're down to the home stretch, but if there are any fence sitters out there, we certainly have room for a couple of more. And uh, we are, let's see, I, we're just two weeks away right now, two weeks from now, uh, I'll probably be talking to you uh, as I'm boarding a plane or something like that. So that'll be uh, exciting. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, like I said, if there's any fence sitters, we'd still love to have you. Just come to BaseballHQ.com and click on the big uh, Florida palm tree logo on the right side. You can get all the details there. And I mentioned this, uh, I think, last week, but the, lots of people uh, who listen to this show go to spring training anyway. And if you're going to be in the area, why wouldn't you, you know, drop in and hang out with a uh, hundred or 150 guys like you and and experts? So you can hobnob with. It's great. Uh, First pitch Arizona is great. Uh, moving it to Florida was a master stroke. Uh, I'm sorry I won't be able to get there this year, but uh, I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun. It will be, and you and I can catch up in a couple of weeks at Tout Wars, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that that's what we'll do. Ray, thanks a million. Thank you, Patrick. Ray Murphy is a Baseball HQ columnist and co-general manager, and he's our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio. 
When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentary, the three-minute warning coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, a second reminder about BaseballHQ.com and specifically about a special offer for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Enter the promo code PATRICK, all capital letters, when you're checking out and you'll get an instant 10% off a site subscription and or 10% off the two excellent Baseball HQ Draft Prep Annual printed publications. You heard me right. 10% off the 2020 Baseball Forecaster. And by the way, I have a couple of articles in there if that's an added incentive. And if you want, and you should, 10% off the 2020 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which has profiles and commentary on gazillions of prospects. In other words, extremely comprehensive. Some of them are still in Little League. Listen, the way things are going in fantasy baseball, winning is going to absolutely depend on finding those diamonds in the rough or roughs on the diamond, before your competitors snipe you in fab and leave you to roster Lewis Brinson as an injury replacement. Here's another reason to take advantage of the promo offer. It shows your support for the HQ Radio podcast. We're always working here to help out Ray and the HQ Bean Counters, which sounds like a 50s doo-wop group, but isn't really. Getting a few extra sales from listeners like you reassures everybody that Baseball HQ Radio is worth the tens of thousands of Colombian pesos they invest in the show and lets them get back to rehearsing their version of Shaboom for one of those PBS fundraising shows. It's promo code PATRICK, all capital letters. If you use it, you'll get the benefit of a subscription and those great draft prep annuals I mentioned, and you'll be helping a brother out. Life could be a dream. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for the three-minute warning, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about repeating high homer seasons. Earlier in the podcast, you heard Nick and I discussing how relatively rare it is for hitters to repeat 50 home run seasons. In fact, since 2007, only seven hitters have even mashed 50 taters, and not one of them ever did it again later in his career. Never mind back-to-back. That got me thinking, which is always a dicey proposition. 50 home runs is a colossal number, and its very rarity suggests a lot of things must have gone absolutely right in that season. That, in turn, implies that it's simply unlikely to happen again. After all, things don't go absolutely right all that often. But I thought, if we should discount the possibility of a hitter repeating a 50 home run season, what about a 40 home run season? Well, it turns out hitting 40 homers isn't as rare as 50 as you'd expect, where there were just those seven 50 bangers between 2007 and 2018, there were 50 40 home run seasons by 37 different hitters. But even so, repeating a season was the exception and not the rule. Of those 50 seasons, just 14 were back-to-back 40 swatters, a 28% repeat rate. To bet on it, then, you'd want the equivalent of about 5-2 to odds. 
A 30 home run repeat, of course, a little better bet, naturally enough. Of the 171 30 homer seasons from 2007 through 18, 72 were back-to-backs. We're up to 42% repeat rate. And by the way, there's one player who had seven straight 30 homer seasons and one who had eight 30 homer seasons in a row. Guess who? And I'll tell you when my three minutes are up. 42% repeat rate is about 13 to 12 as a betting proposition, which is shaving it as close to your Adam's apple as you can without a nick. If you want to get on the right side of a coin flip bet for repeaters, you got to move down to those 20 home run seasons. There were just over a thousand of them from 2007 to 18, and of those, 574 were repeated. That's a 57% repeat rate, so it's an odds-on bet. You got to lay four to win three. And 20 home runs, it turns out, is the kind of achievable mark that lends itself to consistency. In that 2007 to 18 period, 30 different hitters had streaks of four or more seasons with 20 plus home runs. Since Nelson Cruz started playing more or less full time in 2009, he's never not hit 20 home runs. The player with seven straight 30 home run seasons, by the way, Miguel Cabrera from 2007 to 13, and the player with eight straight 30 home run campaigns, and counting? Give yourself a pat on the back if you said Edwin Encarnacion, who got his first 30 homer year way back in 2011 and hasn't stopped since. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. I have my three-minute warning here at Baseball HQ Radio on Friday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number four of the 2019 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt, your three-minute warning commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Stitcher or Pocket Cast, iTunes, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps new listeners find us, which helps us grow and keep the podcast going. Don't forget to cash in your promo coupon code PATRICK when you buy an annual or a subscription, or both, at BaseballHQ.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with another Tuesday Tout Expert interview on our next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Tuesday and so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.